Evidence tells us that centric relation is a dynamic position. We are not buildings which will then remain in those fixed positions. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello everyone, it's Jazz Galanti here and welcome to episode 20. Got a really fun episode with you, Kushal Gadia. Guys, it's been a long time coming for this episode. I do apologize. February was super busy. I was basically so busy setting up and finalizing my splint course that we delivered, Precision Tend Studio in February. And thankfully it went really well. So that's like a big, big sort of thing off my list that I had to do. And it was, it was great fun doing it. And I'm so happy with how it went. But now I can get back to focusing on some podcasting. I've actually got so many episodes recorded with great guests, including today. I hope you like the title, a bit tongue-in-cheek obviously. We've got so many more guests, in fact I'm actually in a hotel, I'm in a Premier Inn right now in Cheshire, I'm part of the Dawson Academy and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Harmi Grewal on Rubber Dam, so probably in about five or six episodes time it will be Harmit, that's what I'm recording from at the moment. So for those of you that remember, this is going to be the first episode that's going to be offering enhanced CPD, so now you can actually get CPD for listening to Protrusive Dental Podcast, so the way you do it is I'll post up a link in the next week or so and you can then visit Dental Tubules so you have to be a Dental Tubules member to get the Enhanced CPD answer a few questions acknowledge the aims and objectives and you will get your Enhanced CPD now and from this episode onwards we'll try and do that for every episode so you can now get Enhanced CPD Protrusive Dental Pearl I have for you today is basically to find your nearest TMD based physiotherapist the way you do that is I want you to go to a website and I'm going to obviously put this in the, in the show notes and actually on that note the Facebook group the protrusive dental community facebook group has really taken off i've got people like richard mckindo and zach cara on there who are making amazing soe custom screens on there that are really really helpful and i've got other people sharing papers so someone asked a question there we we're sort of helping each other out it's basically not a replacement for you know your usual big facebook groups but it's for, for a way for me to connect to my listeners and share my files and stuff I often promise you so this website i'm about to recommend i'm going to be sharing on the group also on the website jazz.dental and based Basically, it is the Association of Chartered Physiotherapists in Temporomandibular Disorder. So it's basically ACPTMD. And the website is acptmd.co.uk. You go on there and you sort of uh, look, you'll find your local chartered physiotherapist in TMD. And this is amazing, guys. This is so important to, to have that sort of referral pathway. Physio is really underutilized um, you know, from dentists as referrals. It's incredibly helpful with people suffering from anything within the realm of TMD and anyone who who, you know, has a, an in-depth discussion. You know how much I don't actually like that term TMD. It's a very broad term, but hey-ho, let's go with it. So my advice is find your local TMD physiotherapist. Do what I did, invite them out for coffee, have lunch with them, and just learn about the type of treatments they offer. And so many of my patients have had benefit from meeting the, the local physiotherapist I refer to now. And it's, it's great for your learning and your patients ultimately will really benefit. So that's my protrusive dental pearl. We're going to just, because, you know, I, I'm going to get stuck in with the episodes. So I've got Kushan Gaudia now. I hope you like it and I'll see you at the outro. Enjoy. Kush, we're going to dry dive right in. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, Kush. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Jazz. Thanks for inviting me. And we're going to talk about something really cool. But before we come on to that, I'm going to do a crappy introduction of you as I do for my guests nowadays. So Kush, from, to me, you are such a giving dentist. You're obviously a restorative specialist. I believe you're in the specialist register for all the specialties. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
Oh, perio endo and prosto and restorative. Yes, yeah. Yep. And what you know, I learned about you through tubules. You know, you're you're a two fellow tubulite as well. You probably run one of the most successful dental and tubule study clubs uh, in the world. Let's say because I believe your one in um, is it is it North London or? That's right, North London, Stanmore. You guys have like, you know, waiting lists. You have to turn people away every time. So, I mean, that just speaks volumes about you and the environment that you've created your practice. And obviously with the ACE courses, which I've been, uh, I'm part of the alumni, what you guys have set up there is just phenomenal. So you are someone who's a, a massive inspiration to me and all, all dentists. So what would you like to add to that description? Please tell everyone where you work. I'm just a dentist. I have a passion for dentistry. I've had this since I was an undergraduate, so I'm nothing exceptional, but constantly thriving to do the best I can. I work part-time in hospital and part-time in practice, uh, referral practices. So that's how I split my week and a couple of days teaching every month. So that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. And are you allowed to say in public whether you prefer practice more or hospital more? I prefer both of them because one keeps me real, uh, which is the practice setting. You know, time is money and uh, practice allows you to make sure your treatment plans are not lengthy as sometimes they can be in hospital. But on the flip side, the satisfaction of working in a hospital setting, treating some very complex cases, not as much oncology I do now, but from cleft cases to trauma to hypodontia to amylo, any congenital uh, deformities. And to see these patients from a very young age, sometimes going all the way into adulthood and appreciating not just dental outcomes, but life in general. That keeps me real in that sense. So for me, having trained in an NHS background, giving back to the NHS, seeing those patients, treating those complex cases and feeling that love mm-hmm. from that is, you know, you can't, I wouldn't compromise any day for any value of money. That's amazing. That's really good. No, no. It's great that you have your sort of uh, foot in each, you know, practice and hospital. And I think it makes you uh, the, the great clinician you are. And, that, you know, you have so much to offer. So one one of the favorite things that we, me and you love discussing about, and I learned about how passionate you are about occlusion when I came on the three-day uh, ACE courses, which was phenomenal, by the way, if anyone's thinking of doing it. And I wanted to speak to you on the podcast about the, the very funny title that we came up with was, which is, if you're not in centric relation, you will die. <laughs> yeah, I remember you sending me that and I love the sarcasm on that. Uh, I think these... And it's 100% true, right? It's 100% true. If you're not in CR, you will die. Uh, well, it depends on the scenario, but but not every case needs to be incentric. I think there's this myth that every case has to be incentric. If you don't, then everything you do will fail. There are cases when we don't treat incentric, but I, I'm sure we'll discuss and uh, elaborate on this. That's exactly it. I wanted to touch on these points. So, um, th- I mean, the first thing I want to say to, you know, for the benefit of my listeners is as a young dentist, which uh, obviously I'm still young, I suppose, is when I qualified, newly qualified, and when I was a student, I found getting my head around centric relation very tricky. I really struggled with it. And now that I feel I know it to, you know, to, to where I am in my career now compared to where I was five years ago, let's say, now that I am much more confident with these definitions and the clinical application of it, and I can now look back and think, you know, I was really overcomplicating it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what everyone does. And I think part of the reason why everyone overcomplicates occlusion and definitions and centric relation is because the bloody definitions keep changing and the terminologies keep changing. Definitions keep changing. We don't 
get taught occlusion in the depth we should be taught as undergraduates. And sometimes it's taught not in the easiest of ways to understand. And then we sort of carry that weight with us when we become dentists and then come across people who may have different opinions of occlusion. And it's such an interesting topic, but it has been not that well taught that it doesn't become of that much significance. Yet from a clinical point, it is the most important factor for me when I assess and treat and plan my patients. And I think it's just keep it simple, keep it real, make it applicable. You know, we can go and talk about the science and the evolution of the whole concept of occlusion, but is that necessary? What matters to us is what matters to our patients. And if we assess them well and we execute the plans well, what I call using the logical approach, then we will be able to provide very predictable uh, dentistry. And the reason, I mean, you, you summarized it well there, but the reason why I love occlusion so much and I love studying it and I love applying it is because for me, occlusion not only brings you predictability in what you're doing, but it also makes dentistry so much more fun. You know, there's nothing worse than single tooth dentistry, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, from single tooth to multiple teeth, the concepts of occlusion, the more you study, the more you will start seeing. You've been through the course and I keep sort of saying this, that for me, when I started developing passion for occlusion, the more I kept an eye for it, the more I've learned about occlusion. The more I've then gone and read about it, the more it sort of consolidated in my mind. And it is making it applicable, which is very, very important. There's no point one person reading the theory and then knowing the whole book about it when they can't translate that theory into clinical world. Which is exactly why, you know, another reason why, you know, uh, as a newly qualified dentist, I, I struggle with it a lot because it's difficult at that stage to start learning so much and applying it. And, and of course, going back to what I said earlier about the whole definitions, if you actually look at the glossary of prosthodontic terms, the previous editions and the newer editions, and by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm going to stick the latest link to the glossary of prosthodontic terms on this uh, sort of uh, blog page for this episode so everyone can download it. But yeah, it's funny, the definitions of CR keep changing and the other definitions, for example, centric occlusion has also changed definitions over the last two, three sort of um, editions. But if we just start, start off the bat with the, the following, which is what is the definition of centric relation that you teach, Kushal? And, you know, why do you like this definition? Is it is it just because it's the latest on the glossary or is this the one that you find that's most applicable? I find this definition that I use most applicable. Before I tell you the definition of what I use, I want everyone who's listening to this to understand that centric relation, by all the definitions we have known, looks at the position of the condyle within the glenoid force. Yet, clinically, we can't visually see that position. So we use teeth as references because that's what we're trained to see and trained to look at. So for me, the definition that I've read and seen in Mike Wise's textbook and the definition being it's the relationship of the mandible to the maxilla when our condyles are in its most superior position within the glenoid fossa and when their anterior surfaces are against the posterior surfaces of the eminence. Now, I know there is variations to this. I'm fully aware of it. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app 
for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We work so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Yeah, I, I like what you just said there about, you know, it's difficult to clinically verify and that's why I use teeth as references. I mean, one of my mentors, Michael Melker, is uh, obviously coming in May and your, you guys, uh, Ace Crew, is also coming along to So I'm really looking forward to being a massive sort of a geeky convention of occlusionists, if you, if you like. But one of the things that he taught me was unless you get a scalpel and actually peel back the sort, sort of uh, and actually visually look at the, the condyle in the glenoid fossa, there's no way of actually 100% knowing for sure, and hence why the you know the references of the teeth coming in comes into play. Absolutely. It's, we as dentists use teeth as references, and therefore when we talk about, and I know I'm jumping a little bit, but trying to put this in context, in that when we tell people every case needs to be restored in CR, or CR is the most reproducible position we need to restore patients to, we are using teeth as references. We are not, like Michael Melkler said, and like I said earlier, on, we don't visually go and inspect the condyles by dissecting somebody's mandible. And this then boils down to if you do choose to restore somebody to CR, you want those condyles to be in a position that are reproducible, that are comfortable for the patient. And when you start doing the restorative work, you have to test and verify either initially using your splint therapies, your temporaries, your wax ups, your mock ups, whatever stages you take. But at the end of the day, we use teeth as references to ensure those condyles are in the position they should be. Absolutely. So first off, first thing someone would wonder is, okay, so why do we need to use CR? And, and then the whole thing about it being reproducible, I think every single person listening and every single person who's a you know final year student at dental school can, can, you know, if an exam paper comes up, why use centric relation? Everyone will always write it's reproducible. It was never actually made tangible to me because because the way I think about it is my own bite at the moment, my MIP, my maximum intercuspation is reproducible for me because I can reproduce it, right? Because my muscles have memory. So to me, I was I never really got that. And what actually made me learn the definition and learn, appreciate it better was actually when you appreciate what happens when you don't use CR in a rehab and that gives the scope for posterior interferences, i.e. if you're an MIP and you can slide back a few millimeters to, you know, where, you, where your condyle is in centric relation, then you can be in, for example, in bruxism, you could be doing a lot of damage on that sort of back movement, if you like. And to me, that made it like, oh, now I get it in the sense that if you have a reproducible position in all head postures, then people can only brux and function or power function ahead of that position. So that was what we're, you know, I don't know if I hope that made sense to everyone and I hope you can make it clearer as well. But that was to me when the penny dropped. Absolutely. It is both ways. You and I, assuming we both have full sets of teeth, we are able to go into a very reproducible intercuspal position. And reasons behind this is we have this proprioception from periodontal ligament cells. We've got muscles that are used to being in that position. But you and I don't need rehabilitating. For patients who do need rehabilitating, extreme examples being those with severe tooth wear or the completely edentulous patients where there are no teeth to give you stable intercuspal 
positions or patients have worn their teeth away enough that they're habitually now beginning to posture the mandible in different directions without a stable mm-hmm. intercuspal position, then during your restorative phase of work, you have no reference points. And it is those type of cases where we start thinking we need to take patients to centric relation because it's a reference point for me as a clinician, for my technician to work to a point that everything we then construct is following the position of a mandible in such a way that things don't change, smash or break. And then obviously the cases that do have teeth, which is me and you, again, it won't matter too much unless you go into the territory of parafunction. So Kush, I think you summarized really well there about the cases when you would want to use centric relation point, i.e. in those rehabilitation cases. So most cases day to day will be conformative and not in centric relation. But can you think of any cases and can you tell us about those cases where you specifically definitely want to avoid using centric relation for whatever reason? So which situations would you not use centric relation on purpose? That's right. So the two big types of situations where I don't use centric relation is from an incisor relationship position, for example, if you have a class two division one incisor patient and you don't take them into, you're not pursuing any orthodontic treatment on these patients, you taking them into centric relation and pushing them mandible backwards and upwards will only make the class two div one worse. By doing so, you're losing more of the anterior guidance and relying on your posterior teeth for the lateral and protrusive movements. We all know that posterior teeth aren't great for lateral forces. So for to div one type of collusion, not to be restored in centric relation. Fine. So class two, division one, large overjet. If you take them back into centric relation, it would actually effectively increase their overjet, make them more class two. So this is a situation where Kushal's saying that don't rehabilitate that patient in CR. So you, for them, we would call it an arbitrary position, right? We'd call it as an arbitrary treatment position arbitrary treatment position and you have to realize in that if you take a class 2 div 1 into further class 2 div 1 by increasing the overjet you have you will not have you will have to use so much restorative material on the palatal surfaces of the upper or the incisal edges of the lower or a combination of both and yet you will not be able to achieve anterior guidance and you'll create lots of overhangs Mm -hmm. so for these class 2 div 1 type patients of course ideally you want to do orthodontic treatment on them but this is not always an option from an orthodontic point but also from a patient point because there could be a skeletal discrepancy and so on and so forth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with this sort of cases where you're making the overjet worse to what it is now you would use an arbitrary position a habitual position that the patient is quite comfortable with you have to also remember two things number one test 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 i.e whatever you do allow time for it to test before you start jumping into bigger indirect irreversible procedures but also think about the posterior teeth and incorporating long centrics movements in the mandible, which will be even on both surfaces, avoiding interferences on lateral excursions and protecting them from damage in the future. My only question now to make this tangible for everyone is, okay, so we decided that for for most of the cases where we will be reorganizing, we're going to use centric relation for the reasons that we mentioned. And also it, it, frames, it forms like a reference point. But when, in these cases of class 2 Div 1, when we're choosing not to use CR and we're using an arbitrary treatment position where the mandible is a little bit fur- or the condyle is a little bit further ahead then how can we re- you know make this reproducible for that patient i.e. as a reference it becomes very tricky to manage this in terms of communication with the lab 
It does. And then you're then relying on what am I trying to restore? Is it, for example, a toothwear case where you've got worn incisal edges? Can we build these to protect the tooth structure? Think of it. A patient who is in class two, div one, how are they functioning? They're clearly functioning because they're, they're clearly eating and drinking and functioning as normal, mm-hmm. except they have this slightly higher risk of posterior teeth being at a risk of more breakages and having interferences and so on and so forth. So if we try and restore these patients, our primary objective is two things, protect the tooth structure. And obviously, secondary is to ensure that the aesthetic parameters are met. Functionality, aesthetics. And then it all goes down to the habitual adaptation of that patient. Mm-hmm. Now, for example, if I was doing a class two div one type case, I would choose my re- restorative materials to be of conservative nature. So I will use composite over ceramics as my first line of treatment, because I want to make sure if I do composites, I'm doing more additive work as opposed to destructive or preparatory work. I'm not having to drill teeth down, fit crowns, only to realize that in time, which could be in a short period of time, the patient's smashing and breaking them. It's, it's like like it's like you said, yeah, it makes 100%. Like, it's like you said, you know, you said test, test, test. So these sorts of rehabilitations where you're using an arbitrary treatment position, you want to ensure that the patient's comfortable. You want to ensure that occlusion is working for that patient. So whereas you'd, you'd probably always want to put your patient in provisionals in a, in a bigger case, in this particular type of patient where you're not using central relation, it's even, you know, just as crucial to test, test, and test to make to make sure uh, that it's working for them. So that, that's great. And which is the other time that you perhaps would not use central relation? I think you were going to mention another one. That's right. So the second one is, which confuses everybody a lot, which is the large horizontal and small vertical slide when you go from your CRCP to ICP. Now, with that, the key thing is, as your mandible moves from your centric relation contact position, by definition being the first tooth contact position you make in your centric relation, that could be one tooth or multiple. So going from that CRCP to ICP, the mandible moves in a certain direction, usually tends to go a bit forward and a bit upward. The proportion of that forward and upward movement, the horizontal and vertical component could be either large horizontal, small vertical, or or large vertical and small horizontal. Would it it be forward and down, right? I think you're talking about the condyle, I'm talking about the cusp fossa. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Using teeth as references, so where you make your CRCP contact position, Mm -hmm. let's say take a hypothetical situation, the cusp of the upper seven touching the lower seven. Mm-hmm. When that cusp lower mm-hmm. seven goes into from CRCP to ICP, because we use teeth as references, the movement of the tooth, in which involves a horizontal and vertical component, the condyle in itself also has a movement in it, where you have a large horizontal slide from CRCP to ICP. You want to try and avoid using centric relation as a reference point. Because obviously the same issues, that, you know, you have the same issues as having you making someone more class two again you're technically increasing their overjet again right so that's the way to think about it essentially you're ending up in the same scenario with the class two division one patient to you know make them more class two or a patient who has that very large horizontal slide you're technically making them more class two by the mandible going back such a back way and you're having the same restorative challenges right when you go from CRCP to ICP in that slide, and you're right, it's where you've got a very large movement of that condyle uh, in a horizontal plane. And this is very hard to diff- uh, visualize or sort of hard to say uh, verbally without slides on the side, but I don't want to confuse your audience too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we want to use somebody in centric relation as a reference, but going from centric relation to the ICP involves a large horizontal slide, you will suddenly lose that reference point. 
So it is advisable in such cases not to use CR as a reference in these cases. An interesting thought. Imagine that patient now with the large slide and imagine that they receive orthodontics. Yeah. Okay. And the orthodontics was planned in their normal starting malocclusion, wherever it may be, maybe some minor crowding, whatever, right? Now, let's say that during orthodontics, this patient, and this this may be happening all over the world all the time in, in, in orthodontics. Now, this patient undergoing orthodontics suddenly deprograms, right? And now their mandible drops back and now they're going to appear more class two. They're going to have more of an overjet. That's right. So this to me always was very interesting. Something my diploma in orthodontics never really touched on. I always used to think, you know, surely this is important when, when orthodontists are about to put these bite ramps posteriorly, right, and completely disclude everything else, and then now they're going to put brackets on and move everything around, there's a chance that a lot of patients are going to deprogram mm-hmm. and become usually always more class two than they always started out with. Uh, but, but that's very few orthodontists are actually planning that, doing articulated work and checking for slides. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought because there are two types of orthodontic patients. I'm not saying orthodontic patients per se, but there are two reasons why we have to look at orthodontics in a restorative treatment plan. So one is the patient that usually turns up to say, I just want my teeth straightened. But then there are the second type of patients are those patients we're treating not only for straightening, but because they've got tooth wear associated with them. And this was a classic case that you may have seen in the alumni group recently. Patient is coming to the end of their orthodontic treatment, but also have associated tooth surface loss. Mm-hmm. If the orthodontist leaves them in a very in a class one perfect, complete by canine guided relationship, which is what you would hope for, you suddenly start deprogramming these patients and they're going to a class two div one. What are you going to do to them? So we have to plan orthodontic restorative interface very cleverly in such cases. This is not for every patient. These are patients that have got tooth where that need orthodontic treatment before you start managing the tooth surface loss. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And needs to be planned jointly when you're t- treating, you know, cases like this where carry a lot of baggage and need a lot of restorative work as well. Absolutely. On the flip side, I've seen where these tooth wear orthodontists will very cautiously say, I've left an incomplete bite so you've got enough room to restore the worn edges with composite. But actually, by the time I start deprogramming patients, which was what was an incomplete bite in a class one relationship turns into a class two div one. Yeah, absolutely. And how do I now, without going through further orthodontic work, so key point from this is... This is exactly what I meant, you know. I don't think orthodontists, uh, in my experience, and please, anyone listening to this has a different experience, reach out to us, but I don't think orthodontists screen for this routinely yeah, and I think it's how we communicate from a restorative point. So prior to any debond of tooth wear cases, so by timeline view, I've seen a patient who has tooth wear. I've put them through orthodontic treatment. I will plan my CR records before orthodontic treatment starts. So I know where the patient's condyle and therefore the teeth are going to end up. And I then have an indication of how much overjet is existing and how much of that I need to close. I will need to retest that before the debond stage because if I need the occlusion tightened up a little further, now's the time to do it. Once you've debonded a patient and put them on retainers of some sort, having to put the brackets on again is always never a pleasant conversation with the patient. Absolutely. So plan, begin with the end in mind and end in mind and keep checking as you're going along, as you do, uh, you've got very good communication with your orthodontist, obviously. Uh, The next question I want to ask, Kush, is... 
What happens with these patients where you've rehabilitated in centric relation as your sort of reference point, as your where you're going to build your teeth into over the years? What, is, what does the evidence say? These you know when you look back at these cases five years later, ten years later, because I, I think from what I've read and what I gather is that actually we, you know we adapt and we're no longer we we may no longer be in centric, i.e. we may introduce or develop into posterior interferences as the years go by after rehab. Have, have you got any experience or read any good papers about that? Evidence tells us that centric relation is a dynamic position. We are not buildings which will then remain in those fixed positions. The joint, the TMJ joint, is not like a door hinge. Once it's screwed in, it doesn't stay there. It's controlled by a number of factors. Evidence tells us it is, we know, not even evidence, but we know the neurovascular connections which will influence the joint. There's a bony component, the bone remodels. And then obviously patience, stress, state of mind, posture, all these points will come into play and that joint will not stay in its position. We know in five years' time, on average, what you restored in CR will not be in CR. Take a classic example of the last denture you made four years ago where you did your best to take the patient into CR. Even if you got a gothic arch tracing, at the time of taking the jaw registration, it is very likely in three, four, five years' time, those dentures are not in CR. And that's a removable full mouth reconstruction by definition. It's the same for a fixed full mouth rehab that we do, that we're using it as a reference and it doesn't change on a daily basis or we hope it doesn't because we've taken necessary measures pre-treatment to keep it stable and we undertake our treatments in small stages including anteriors, posteriors, temporaries before we move the temporaries into uh, provisionals and provisionals into definitives. But the key thing here is over time, four or five years down the line, the joint changes and when it changes, you will have a new CRCP, ICP slide in a number of cases and yes, you will develop interference or breakages and uh, chipping of the ceramic work or whatever restoration you've done, especially on those patients who start parafunctioning and don't protect those restorations with some form of a splint post-treatment. This is why part of my philosophy, and I know you have it as well, is that, you know, what patients do to their teeth when they batter them and then when you restore them, they're likely to do that again. So an appliance is, just makes sense, you know, as an insurance, because as you say, evidence suggests, and we know their joint position is is dynamic and the occlusion will not be the same five years later and then to have a piece of plastic to protect them it just makes sense it does and we have to remember the average force on a molar tooth posteriorly is about 70 to 80 kilos. It's higher in parafunction. Yep, higher in parafunction, higher nocturnally when we're sort of not conscious, not with it, than what we can achieve in the day. Now that 70, 80 kilo is the average weight of an adult human being. Mm. To try and sit a human being on a molar tooth every day for prolonged periods of time, what's going to happen? It's crazy when you think about it like that, actually. The next question I have, Kush, for you, and where we're coming up to the last few, is um, interesting theory, you know, that used to be popularized by certain dentists and whatnot, is that when you restore someone into CR, that you might actually be able to stop their bruxism, because actually, the only reason they're bruxing is because they're trying to rub away that interference, okay? So, I don't know if you've ever heard this theory before. I heard it when I was a student from certain dentists and, and certain sort of things I'd read. Uh, I, n- I now know what the <laughs> answer is to that, but... Please, can you enlighten our our listeners about this theory? 
So it's interesting you say this. I don't believe that taking somebody to CR will stop bruxism. And if, if I had to give an answer in one sentence, I would say that. I can stretch to the other end. And when I see my four-year-old niece clenching her teeth at nighttime and I, she's in the room next door and I'm unable to sleep and I see the same pattern in my sister and the same pattern in my mother, is there a genetic component involved in this? I always say this in my occlusion lectures when we do parafunction and we go through bruxism. Why is it the masseter muscle? Why don't I wake up with my abs? muscle worked out and have a six pack to think about these factors on a logical level it'd be great if my abs were working out i would never complain about it <laughs> here we are in a situation where if anyone thinks that taking somebody to cr will stop their parafunction i think they need to probably update their knowledge on this topic some historical institutes are used to teach this and this used to be part of you know the program from what i read in history that this was the, the understanding that people had actually I, I went to a lecture at the BDA when I was a student I was a third year student and um, a guy from the States came over and he talked about success rate that he had in patients whom had chronic temporomandibular disorder and it's a terrible term because TMDs are made up of several things but that's the term he used he had chronic TMD and they were bruxis and they're really suffering in life and they tried everything that actually he found that he has a one in four chance that when he puts them he rehabilitates them into CR their symptoms will improve and that was probably the most modest and real thing I had so you know he's he did an audit in all his patients and his website at the time was adhesion.com actually I don't know if it's still up there or not. I remember this really funky American dentist. That was, that was an interesting sort of re reflective point that he he actually rehabilitates all his patients. He actually tells his patients, there's a one in four chance that I might cure you. But that's all, you know, th that's such a difficult thing to test. And largely we know that, you know, people will always brux no matter what position you put their joint in. But is this rehabilitation involving full mouth direct or indirect work? Yes. So what he would do actually actually do, you know, what he talked about his protocols in his lecture, he'd actually chop off the sort of the, the you know, couple of millimeters of the molars, let's say, at the back, and then just put gold onlays on and everything in sort of CR, if you like, gold equilibration, if you like. And that was his sort of method. And he, he had, you know, a lecture full of a thousand, five hundred thousand people at the BDA at the time. I was like, whoa. I mean, if I spend 10 grand or 50 grand on my teeth, I think that in itself will stop me from parafunctively worried about how much damage I'll cause to the work I've paid for. Uh, Absolutely. Maybe three in four don't worry about the money, but one in four certainly did. Fine. Uh, so yeah, I had one more scenario where we may choose not to restore to CR. So this is a bit jointy, if you like. So um, if people's TMJ anatomy isn't so good, then it sometimes can be difficult to verbalize this, like you said earlier. So someone that has an issue with their medial pole, and let's say you can't load them so they can't load their joints mm -hmm. then that's another patient I think that well, you would have to accept an arbitrary position which is uh, going to provide relief from their symptoms and because obviously if you load that patient it's going to be impinging on retrodiscal tissue so we, would you agree that I mean we, but these patients are so rare but I think if you're going to discover another group of patients that would be another someone else who you wouldn't restore to CR do you agree with that? That's I agree with that and you've got to obviously do your log testing on these patients before you start rehabilitating patients in CR. Depending on the audience that will listen to this, they'll either come out very confused thinking about what the medial pole and retrodiscal tissue and CR and all this terminology is, but I'd like your audience to take away one thing which is if you're new to this game of occlusion or haven't got too much of an understanding of occlusion, please don't get flustered by it. You have to understand that when I was an undergraduate, everyone told me you have to restore every case to your centric relation or at the time they were calling it RCP. And um, RCP is now very old terminology. Uh, no one should 
be using it. Uh, it means the condyles in a very different position to being in CR. But we mean the same. We all mean the same. It has to be in a reproducible position. But there are cases where we can't restore patients in CR. And as uh, Jazz has mentioned, there are cases where you, when you put patients in CR, you will develop pain uh, in the joint because it's putting pressure on your disc at the back. And then the other two cases that I described, one of which is a class 2 div 1 or the third one being the large horizontal slide. So if I was trying to summarize this in a simple way, you have to keep your eyes open that not every case needs to be treated, restored in CR. That's that's brilliant. And I think uh, I really like what you said there, that um, occlusion can be quite a daunting, confusing game. I'm still developing my knowledge knowledge all the time with this. It's a passion that obviously it's a part of the dentistry, which I'm really passionate about. But everyone has their own journey. And um, I, I suppose you have to spend time in the dirt. And what I mean about that is everyone, where you are in your journey, in your undergraduate learning or where you've qualified and you're sort of going to courses and you're developing your knowledge is you have to do your time. There's no shortcut. You have to reflect. You have to read Dawson's book. You have to find mentors who will help explain, break cases down for you. You have to go on case courses like, you know, ACE courses that do or several other courses that are out there that help us to, to learn more and more. So if someone's feeling like, whoa, I really didn't get what they said there and I can completely, if I went back four years ago and I listened to us talking now, a lot of what we discussed would have gone over my head. But like you said, don't be disheartened because everyone's on their, on a journey and, and to keep striking and actually do the work. You know, There's no shortcut. You have to fail. You have to reflect. You have to keep updating your knowledge, spend those hours learning, listening, reading. So I, I think nowadays people uh, want the information or want to know something and, and get on with it ASAP. But it took me years and I think that's about right. It should take you years. And as long as you're improving, getting better and developing knowledge, that's the most important thing. That's right. And we have to understand that when you get your basics right, which is from an occlusion point, and sorry, I'm diverging from the current topic of centric relation jazz. No, no, please go for it. Please, you know, this is, we're wrapping it up now and this is a good point to bring in because obviously, yeah, we've just we discussed CR, but what you're saying now is so important. What I'm trying to get across is 90%, if not more, of our day-to-day dentistry happens in intercuspal position for the dented patients. Be that a simple filling, occlusal, MOD or MOD, whatever extension it is, direct, indirect dentistry, we do it in our conformative intercuspal position. If occlusion baffles you, just get your single unit or multiple unit conformative dentistry and master the principles in that. This topic of centric relation when we're trying to move the mandible uh, and the condyle in its most reproducible position starts to come in when you start treating the bigger cases. So this may not apply to your day-to-day dentistry, but the understanding of it, especially when you start doing the bigger cases, is of paramount importance. I hope that sort of puts things in context because people start thinking of CR when they're doing their day-to-day dentistry and it doesn't apply in whatever form or shape. You have to assess where the contacts are, CRCP contact is. Don't get baffled by the fact that we're discussing such a topic. This is very likely the next stage in your career if you're not working outside of the remit of conformative dentistry. And it's when you come to start doing reorganized approaches when you need to start making this jump. Uh, and learning CR. That's brilliant, guys. Kushal said it loud and clear then, you know, become a good conformer first, you know, become a fantastic and, and actually properly conforming, you know, don't just look at your sort of work and then restore it as long as everything's balanced is fine. Actually truly try and conform to the best of your ability and do multiple units slowly over time, get comfortable with that, but again, conforming. And only when you get to the bigger cases, like Kushal said, that's when what we're saying will apply. And maybe three or four years later, you'll listen back to this episode 
certain thing oh okay that sort of makes sense now wherever you are on your journey just uh, do the best you can and strive to get better so Kushal with that on that vein thank you so much for giving me your time to, to, to our listeners to, to learn more about centric relation and ha- in cases where you should be using it and, where, and importantly where you shouldn't be using it and of course we're all going to die one day so especially if you're in CR or not you are going to die absolutely we've got to be real in life Kushal thank you so much mate it's my pleasure, Jazz. Thanks for inviting me once again. Thank you guys for joining me back on episode 20, which has been a long time coming. So thanks for the patience. Got so many great episodes coming up, probably like once a week now from now on. A lot of these will be going to be video episodes as well. So I hope you enjoyed that and I'll catch you in the next one.